Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone. This week we have famous historian Simon Seabag Montefiore joining us in the second half in our War in Ukraine anniversary series. Simon is a best-selling and prize-winning writer of history and fiction whose books are published in 48 languages. He has won prizes for both history and fiction, and his latest book is The World of Family History. Simon has also written extensively on the history of Russia. In this episode, Juan and Simon discuss looking at history through the viewpoint of certain families, historical examples of gambling, Simon's read on the current geopolitical sphere from a historical perspective, how Russia may be judged by future historians, especially over the past 12 months, possible solutions to current conflicts, and the most amazing story regarding Simon's access to the Kremlin archives and his research for his first book on Stalin. Enjoy. Simon Sebak Montefiore, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm really well, and it's great to be on the podcast. Great to talk to you, and, uh, and, and thanks for having me. Where do we find you today? I'm in, um, I'm in London. I'm in my office, uh, in my study, where I do all my writing. And I've been traveling a lot, promoting the book everywhere. And I'm, you know, I've been in India um, and traveling around India. And I'm just back here for a bit. And then I'm off to Spain, South Africa, America, all over the place. That's fantastic. So it is my understanding that you are a must-have author at any English house. So pretty much every single English household knows who Simon Spagontefiore is. But for those that might not know who you are outside of the UK, could you please give us a brief introduction about yourself? That's very. That's a very difficult question. That's really your job. Um, but... <laughs> But um, I, I'm a British historian. I, I write about power mainly. Um, I've written especially four um, big books about Russian power, two on Stalin and um, based on his archives, um, one on Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin about their relationship and how they conquered Crimea and South Ukraine, and one about the Romanov dynasty that ruled Russia for over 300 years. Um, but I, my other expertise is, is about the Middle East, and I've written a history of Jerusalem using the holy city as a focus, as a lens to tell the history of the Middle East, really. So those are my sort of specialities. But now I've written a history of the world told through families. It's called The World of Family History. And 
It's really a study of, of power and of, and of all the great movements of history, technological and, and, and ideological and, and um, war and pandemic. And it's t but it's told through the lens of family. And um, really the idea of it is that most, most global histories are a little distant from humans. They're all about machines and technology and, and trade routes and commodities. And um, yet most biographies are too focused and too, too small. And so the idea of the world, my new book, is, is, a, is, is to capture the, the span of world history with the intimacy of biography. It's absolutely, it's a beautiful book, I have to say. And it, it's a fascinating read. I have really enjoyed every single page of it. Before we jump into some of the questions that we had related to, the, to your latest book, wondered, I heard once that, was it uh, Putin who commanded you to write a biography of Stalin? Is that correct? Not, not exactly. What happened was, what happened was when I, my first history book is a joint biography of Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin. And um, they are the couple who, as I mentioned earlier, fascinating couple. They were really children of the Enlightenment. They were more humane than most rulers of Russia before or after. But they were also great imperialists and they conquered southern Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, from mainly Islamic rulers, from the Tatars uh, and from the Ottomans. And there they founded all the cities that um, we now know um, from the Ukrainian war, such as Mariupol and Kherson and Sebastopol in the Crimea and so on, and, and Odessa, of course. And so they've suddenly become very relevant and very important today. And so shortly before the war, Putin suddenly started mentioning them, Catherine the Great and Potemkin, um, and citing them and their generals to justify the, the, the annexation of the Crimea, which, which they annexed in 1783, the, the last the time before that. And it was because of these historical essays citing this period that I realized that Putin was, a, was about to invade and was, and was in earnest. Um, but I knew this already because when I started to research the book in the, in the 1990s, you know, I was approached by Putin's, Putin was the, I was approached by Putin's entourage and Putin was the new president, the new acting prime minister, um, soon to be elected president. And they said that he was already fascinated with this subject. And even though the book was still being um, translated into Russian, um, they asked if I could sort of write a one-pager, as we say in, in the West, for the, for, for the president about how Potemkin annexed the Crimea. Mm. Um, and so this was pretty interesting at the time because, you know, everyone, all the Western leaders were hailing Putin as this kind of incredible liberal reformer. And yet here he was really most fascinated with the, the creation of the Russian Empire in the 18th century. And so when he read the book, um, I, when it was in tr translated into Russian, he read the book and I was then approached by them and they said, he wants to say, you know, he really admires this book because it treats Catherine the Great and Potemkin as sort of European titans. But he'd like to, he'd like to offer you a kind of, um, he'd show you how grateful he is. And so I said, like, would well, what? Wondering what it was going to be. And yeah. they said, we don't know what you're writing next, but 
you know, would you like, the president would like to offer you access to Stalin's archives, which we're about to open, but he'd like to offer you the first, first access. And it happened that I was already writing the book, Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, which was my book on Stalin. And so obviously, I was, you know, maybe he knew that already and that was why I offered, but I accepted and that's how I, that's how I wrote that book. Okay. And my understanding is he didn't like the outcome. He didn't like the outcome. He hated um, the <laughs> book. He felt it showed Stalin as a sort of um, mafia boss. And so I lost all access. I mean, when I was in the archives, when I was in favor, you know, I had people bringing me Stalin's papers and showing me everything. And I had my own room. I didn't have to sit with the other researchers. I could come and go when I liked. Um, everyone found me things that they used to come to me and say, this, this, you might find this interesting. Such is the favor of the Kremlin, the power yeah. of the favor of the Kremlin. And then, and then, of course, when I wrote, published the book, I was writing a sequel, which was Young Stalin. I, I wrote them in the wrong chronological order. And when I wanted to go back into the archives, they, they said, sorry, but we don't even know who you are. You know, you're oh, no longer, you know, we don't remember you here at all. And I was like, well, I was here for months. <laughs> you must remember me. And they, said, like, and they smiled, but they said, no, we don't remember anything. And you certainly can't have that room. And when I asked for documents, they said, we can't bring any. So, so it was a very Russian story. They, they actually said, we can't bring any documents because there's been an accident and two guards have fallen down the lift shaft and their bodies are at the bottom of the lift shaft. So we can't bring up any documents for you. And wow. It was a very Russian, uh, very, everything in Russia is either a conspiracy or an accident, a sort of bungled accident. But this yeah. was both. This was both. Simon, I have to ask, I was uh, going through the world of family history, and when I got to the section about the Rothschilds, the wife of the Nathaniel, 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 Nathaniel yeah. her sister married a Montefiore. Yes, no. the families, the families intermarried about, I don't know, I think about eight times. There were, there were constant sort of, and I think they were pretty much That marriage was not an arranged marriage because at that time, um, NM Rothschild and Montefiore were sort of, they were not unknown, but they were rising young financiers. And so there was no, they were not dynasties at that point. And there was no reason for, for, arranged, for them to arrange uh, a marriage to, but, but, it was, but on both of their accounts, it was a very good marriage. It was a better marriage. They were marrying into a wealthier family than their own, both of them, which was the family of Levi Baron Cohen, who was a Dutch um, financier. And, um, and they married, so they married sisters. And from one sister's, the Rothschild family is descended. And for a while, Montefiore and Rothschild lived together in the same building in what is now Newcourt, you know, where the, where the Rothschild Bank still stands in London, in the city of London. And they lived together above the bullion shop where they traded bullion and uh, gold bullion. But of course, with the coming of the, the Napoleonic War, um, as that war developed, the Rothschilds became the most important bankers in Europe, as Britain became more important in Europe too. They started as the main suppliers of Species of gold coins to pay the armies of the Duke of Wellington um, in Spain and Portugal. 
And they were experts at, at, I guess, the secret work of getting the money across the channel and to the army. And from that, they built their career as the greatest sort of the greatest bankers, banking family of all time. And the Montefiori's remained a sort of sub Rothschild. Um, you know, they remained constantly intermarrying with the family and very close together. And Moses Montefiore and, and Nathaniel Rothschild, and then his son, Lionel Roth, the Rothschild, remained, who was his uncle, of course, remained extremely close right, right the way um, through, through the whole 19th century, effectively. And they were, the, they were two extremely important Jews, two extremely important bankers. They worked extremely hard um, to lift the restrictions against Jews in Britain and, and, and elsewhere. And of course, they were remarkable businessmen as well. That's absolutely fascinating. So the world of family history, it's such a piece of research and it's very impressive, well-weaved. It's just uh, really fantastic. And from, so I wanted to ask you from a research perspective, how does one approach such a massive project and make it successful? What I realized when I was, when I realized was that no one had done anything like this before. And Benjamin Disraeli always used to say, when I want to read a book, I write it myself. So I, as I said at the beginning, I really wanted to find a way to combine these two genres of history into one. And I wasn't sure it would work. And I, I, I sort of played with the idea. I needed to find families that linked together the whole of world history. Of course, Asia and Africa and Europe are all very closely linked together. The Americas all, you know, were, were, and Australia were completely separate for many, many millennia, centuries. So, so they were harder to bring in. But the essential idea was that families would provide link across history. And really, this, this idea depended on the fact that, you know, it's just a fact that families or dynasties have been the predominant method of government. Uh, throughout world history for thousands. And we can discuss why that might be. But even today, this is still very true. And you only have to look across Asia to see that there are, and, and the Middle East to see that, and Africa for that matter, to see that, you know, constantly rulers are still, you know, ruling through families today. And it isn't something that's sort of, it, it isn't something that's just diminishing in the, 20, in the 21st century. It's actually increasing now again after a period when it seemed to be in, in abeyance. So, so, you know, family is a very good way to look at world history. But, you know, then I had to select the families. I had to see, see, see find a way of telling the story. And really, I, it had to be readable, but it also had to be scholar. The scholarship had to be correct. And um, it was an immense challenge to write this. I don't think I could have written it without, without COVID and lockdown because, because uh, it gave me a chance to be completely focused. And I was alone in this office where I'm speaking to you from for two and a half years. And, but of course the challenge was to master all these subjects. And that was really murderous. And I, you know, I barely survived the stress of doing it. And I didn't really sleep for about two and a half years, but, you know, the essential criteria is that each family is a way of telling something, some story. I mean, 
Rothschild, you mentioned, you know, that's a way of telling the story of the creation of modern capitalism and capital markets mm. and that the world that we exist in today. But you could also look at, you know, Wedgwood, you know, the 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 the, the potter, the pottery um, tycoon, he invented modern marketing. The Rockefellers mm. invo- invented the oil business and so on. So you can look at business families, for example. And of course, there are many banking families whose banks still exist today in various forms, all of whom can be used to tell stories. I mean, another relative family that I'm related to is the Sassoon family, and they were the Rothschilds of the East, and they controlled huge amounts of trade in, in, um, in Bombay and Shanghai, for example. But you know, I, I decided not to cover the Sassoons because I was covering the Rothschilds. So I constantly had to make decisions about mm-hmm. who to cover, but who not to cover. But the essential rule is that I wanted to make, make this the most diverse history that had ever been written of the world. And the way I did that was to treat the ruling families of Dahomey or Mali or, or the, Zulu, um, the Zulu kingdom or, 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 the, or the ruling um, dynasties of India or China exactly the way I would treat the Habsburgs or the or the you know or the or the, or the Rothschilds or the Romanovs and to treat them all exactly the same and that's what I've done in this book. Um, so that's one part of it. And another part of it is you know female history. You know, when I grew up sort of women were left out of a lot of histories. Mm. And so this book is absolutely full of interesting interesting and brilliant women. And by the way, they're no better and no worse at governing than, than men. So <laughs> that's, that's one of the conclusions of the book. But it, it was, this book has been an amazing challenge and I'm sort of so excited that it's done. And so thank you for saying it's, 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 you know, you've enjoyed it because that means a lot. It's uh, such an impressive fit, um, almost 1,300 pages, and it, it, they, it, they go very fast, very quickly. And I need to ask you, and this is going to be a very difficult question, I guess. But what are your top three favorite characters, families, passages in the history of the world and why? Well, that's God, that's a very difficult question. But I guess there is a simple answer to that, which is that, you know, when I started to write this book, I was looking for families that linked up everything, um, linked, linked up whole worlds whole, and crossed almost, well, many centuries, but also many, many worlds. And so the book has about three mega families in it. And so I guess I should name them. You know, the oldest one uh, is, was the family of the prophet Muhammad and his descendants. Uh, you know, if you, if you follow the, the Muhammad family dynasty, it's, not often, it's never called that, of course. It's, you know, we call those different dynasties, the Abbasids and, and, and the Fatimids and so on, and the Umayyads and the Hashemites of today. But actually they, you know, you can really follow from about 500 or 600 AD all the way to today through that one family. And so that is, that's got to be, that has to be one of the great families. And um, if I could choose any time to live, it probably would have been at the court of the caliphs, Harun al-Rashid and, uh, and, and, and others of that time in the eighth and ninth centuries um, of, of Baghdad and, and Damascus and the Umayyads of Damascus, because I think that was the height of human um, culture to me and literature oh. and music and everything. And I think those were great times to live. But the second family would be 
would be the family of Tamerlane and Genghis Khan. Well, Genghis, starting with Genghis Khan, around the year, around the, the first millennium, around the year 1000, and they, they, they obviously conquered much of the world, the greatest empire the world has ever known. And when that empire broke up 400 years later, Tamerlane, Timur, Timur the Lame, became a sort of a, a, an emperor and ruled his own dynasty and married into the Genghis Khan family. And his family then ruled Mughal India. The Mughals were, were, the, were the family of Tamerlane and they ruled right until 18, 1850s. So that's another 800 year, that's over 800 years of, of, of Asian history. And then I guess the third family would be the Habsburgs mm. because yeah. they're the way they really, if you go, there's, there's a single family right from Charlemagne, the family of, of the Pepinids, right through um, the Hofstaff and, and then into, that, into the Habsburgs. But that's well over a thousand years too. And that ends in 1918. And that's all one family as well. So those are the three mega families that really are the center of the book. So interesting. This is a podcast that has explored how humans make decisions under uncertainty. And historical analogies are always brought forward or quoted. One of the most famous ones being Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon and famously saying, "The dice has been cast." When dealt with a when when dealt with a Campbell, people can often say, "We have crossed the Rubicon as well." What other passages in history have a similar similar parallel when a big gamble was taken for good or bad? Was it Frederick saying, "My only motto now is conquering or die"? Gambling was all that was left. I must embark on a great adventure and play double or quits? Or was it maybe Louis XVI's gamble to support the Americans? Well, I think, I think um, political life um, and power is filled with gambles. And so I think every, I mean, every leader who's ever made, an, you know, led an, ordered an invasion uh, has, has taken a massive gamble. All military, uh, all military expeditions and adventures are enormously risky. I mean, one of the things I wanted to do in this book, and I did it deliberately, was the, 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 the way it switches from continent to continent abruptly. I wanted to get a, a feeling for the messiness of human affairs and therefore the complexity of human decision making, where you know, every leader, even, even today with Rishi Sunak, for example, you know, is facing many crises in many places. And, you know, one of, one of the one of the interesting things is that, you know, you never know which crisis is going to solve itself. Um, uh, for example, gas prices, you know, might go down. They are going down, for example. But then you never know that, that which of these many, many um, uh, uh, matters on your desk are going to explode. And that's even, that's even with many reactive leaders. Like the Western democracies, many of the leaders are essentially reactive. And that's one of the problems with our systems. You know, one of the problems about decision making in the Western democracies is that you can get rid of the governments easily, but the governments are in power for a very short time. And the rulers are, are, are often, the leaders are often rather ordinary, rather managerial. Um, while on the other hand, you can have the, you know, the autocratic systems where the, decision, the decisions can be made much faster because less people need to be consulted, obviously. But the downside of that, you can never get rid of the rulers. And if they get it wrong, they double down instead of switching. When you go back to the democracies, the great criticism is that they're completely inconsistent. 
every five or 10 years, they completely change policy and no one knows where they are. Mm. And again, that's a contrast with autocracy. So decision making is really is a really an interesting one. I mean, Bismarck continually con con continually compared his decisions to go to war, for example, with a man um, in, a, in a casino um, taking, making a gamble. And so, you know, virtually all these leaders recognize that military affairs are a huge gamble. And we're seeing that today. I mean, I think, I think Hitler's invasion of, of Russia in 1941 has to be, the, is, is in terms of the size of the armies and the size of the clash and the intensity of the clashes, the greatest gamble in modern, um, in modern world history taken by one man. I think that, you know, that counts lot, much, lot, much, as much greater than Frederick the Great, for example, but which is also you know, an example of a, of a gamble, a gamble that ultimately paid off, but almost destroyed him many times. And there are, you know, there are, many, many, there are many other examples. Alexander the Great you know, invading, making the decision not just to invade the Persian Empire on a looting expedition that would probably only have, was only probably planned to, to invade Anatolia, you know, present day Turkey, but to expand it to, to, a, to, an, to an attempt to conquer the greatest empire on earth from his small mountainous forested um, fiefdom in Macedonia, in northern, in what, is, what was northern Greece, then northern Greece, that has to rank as one of the great gambles of all time. So. The, the, my book is basically, as you said, um, a study of these decision, these decision, the decision making, and you know, leaders are very that decision making is extremely flawed, always, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the decisions are made with 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 very little information compared to what you require. But you're right that even when there is information, um, people people often you know take the wrong lessons from it. I mean. A little bit of history is, is perhaps worse than no history at all. I mean, for example, um, American leaders, particularly George W. Bush, for example, you know, didn't know much history, but the only history they really did know was about Churchill and, you know, 1938, Munich, 1940. Um, and so they, they always presumed that every leader they were, they were confronting, every enemy America had must be Hitler in 1938-39. Mm. Of course, that isn't always the case. So, so, but you know, I think the study of history is useful, providing one realizes that in making decisions, you know, it it, it adds it's one of the things one consults, but one mustn't depend on it. It doesn't contain actual answers to contemporary problems, but it does contain lessons and guidance, and that's why it's interesting as well as hopefully enjoyable. Is Putin the ultimate thrower of the dice? And given your intimate knowledge of Russia, how do you think history will judge the events of the last 12 months in the region? Well, I think that, first of all, I think Putin has always aspired to be a great Russian ruler. And when he's talked to people, um, he's always, he's often said to people, how will history judge me? And he's also often sort of talked to his entourage about how he judges the sort of rulers of Russia. And he looks back without really ide ide ideology at the rulers. So for example, he regards Peter the Great, Nicholas I, um, Alexander III as great, as great rulers. 
and Stalin, of course. You know, and he regards Stalin, that you know, Stalin is really the most successful Russian ruler of the last 200 years and since the early uh, 19th century. And um, of course, there was that great story when Ambassador Avril Harriman congratulated Stalin on taking Berlin in 1945. And Stalin, quick as a flash, said, yes, but Alexander I took Paris, which <laughs> you know, says a lot about the way he saw the world. And, and Putin disdained the rulers who he thought you know, had broken, had abdicated, had given up. And they were people, you know, he regarded Gorbachev and Nicholas II as interchangeably useless, which is interesting because we see, we see that very differently in the West. We see Nicholas II as a sort of romantic, slightly sort of hopeless, doomed romantic figure. And we see Gorbachev as a great reformer. So we see them as opposites. Putin sees them as very similar people who lost, an, men who lost an empire. And of course, he has a very, very mixed view of Lenin as the person who designed, with, and in fact, it was Stalin and Lenin who designed in 1922, the structure of the Soviet Union that had this rather clever, but as it turned out, a fatal a structure where they created all these republics, like the Republic of Ukraine, the Republic of Belarus, which was supposedly semi-independent and could leave, but in fact never could because they were kept in the Soviet Union by force. But of course, when the Soviet Union started to disintegrate, they all became independent and Putin has never forgiven that. So yes, Putin, Putin looked out at the world and waited for an opportunity to see if he could reverse the breakup of the Soviet Union. And he did that both as a nostalgic revanchist for the for the Soviet Union, but also as a revanchist for empire, for the Russian empire, which he saw as a Russian world, a Russian world, a, a distinct and distinguished special world of Russian culture, Russian language, Russian religion, going back, you know, going back a millennia. And he saw the first opportunity in around 2014, but he didn't go through with it. And he only did, he annexed Crimea and he invaded the Donbass in, in a sort of indirect way. But I believe that that is the great mistake he made. If he'd, take, if he'd invaded full scale the Ukraine in 2014, I think he might have got away with the whole thing. Mm. And, you know, I'm glad he didn't, but I think he might have got away with it. And that would have been, that would have changed the whole of world history early. And it would have been a very, I'm not sure the West would have got itself together at that point. But actually he tried a different method. He thought he could just um, cripple Ukraine. And when that failed, after COVID, he be, during COVID he began to brood about Russian history. And much of it is the Russian history that I've written and spent my life writing, particularly the Romanovs and Catherine the Great and Potemkin. Anyway, I think, he looked at the world and he saw a unique opportunity. We're talking about decision-making. Yes. And he had been an extremely successful ruler, perhaps spoiled by easy successes. But as I was describing earlier, democracies are quite easy to outmaneuver at first because all autocrats have such opportunities for quick movement, quick decision-making, while democracies are by their very nature, one of their virtues, um, cautious and moral and more moral anyway. And so I think it gave him a feeling that he could, he could get away with anything and an overconfidence. But when he looked at the world, you can see how he thought there was a unique opportunity. You know, the Americans had fled in chaos from Kabul. 
in Afghanistan, the EU had broken up with Brexit. Boris Johnson was prime minister in England, widely regarded as by his fans as a, as a sort of bumbling, as a bit of a bumbling maverick, um, by his enemies as a complete clown. And, um, and then, of course, you know, NATO seemed to be paralyzed, you know, brain dead, said President Macron. Um, and then, you know, he already regarded Ukraine as a kind of false state, a sort of ersatz kind of state that, would, that was really part of Russia. He regarded the Ukrainians really as a sort of a sort of second rate Russians. And then this this very corrupt and quite ineptly managed state, Ukraine elected an actual comedian, an actual clown as president. So you can see how from his worldview, his very distorted worldview of Russian history and his distorted view of Russian history, Putin felt there was a unique opportunity here and that the Ukrainian state would surely collapse. Surely a state that elected a comedian as, as its president would collapse. And so I believe that he felt it was a unique opportunity and that's why the decision was made. And as it happened, I think it was a disastrous, um, a disastrous decision for all sorts of ways, all sorts of reasons. I mean, it underestimated the fact that his own actions in two, starting in 2014 had actually transformed Ukraine. And this is one of the fascinating things in history that, you know, how often, you know, people don't just fail to, to bring about um, their projects, but the very attempt to bring about the projects achieves their exact opposite. And in this case, his own actions have created um, a much more intense Ukrainian feeling of um, nationhood, of shared experience and of defiance and a real aspiration to be part of a Western democratic world, and not a Russian world. And much of some of some of this had been achieved by Putin's own uh, cruelties and 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 um, and violence. And so, I think he's made a colossal mistake. I think Russia is already is already a subordinate state to China, but will be much more so in the future. I think we we shouldn't necessarily presume that Russia is in the next sort of fifty years is even going to remain as a single state. Uh, you know. Actually, if you look at history, one always one presumes that all these countries have been around forever. But actually, you know, the Russian Empire, Russia, was only created by Peter the Great, really, between 1700 and 1725. And, and you know, he even gave it a new name. It was before that, it was the Grand Duchy of, of Moscow. He renamed it Russia, which was a kind of imperial idea. And Russia retains that idea of itself as a state. So... You know, it also could break up and it could disintegrate. I'm not sure that complete disintegration would be a good thing for everybody. But who knows? You might get a very powerful Ukraine, you might get a very powerful Poland. When you, when you write world history, you, you realise that empires fall, states disintegrate, you know, nothing is forever. And so there could be a massive change. You know, Russian population is sinking um, or they have a demographic crisis. Um, and, you know, how long is... Are carbon fuels going to be, you know, the, enough to fund that empire, that state? So, you know, I think, but in the short term, I think he's he's made a big mistake. I mean, the initial military invasion failed, and now a year later, you know, Russia's lost 180,000 men. Now, it, that sounds like a catastrophic amount um, to us, but of course, in the first year of World War II, Stalin lost six million men. Six million. Yeah. And, yeah. And he recovered 
to to win the war. So you know, you know, the Russian ruler, you know, has to he has to use terror to keep power. But you know, he's about to launch a massive um, offensive at the time that we're having this conversation, the spring offensive of twenty three, and I don't think it will succeed, but it could throw the front um, back further, and there could be a military crisis. You know, I personally think that in the end, Ukraine will in some form or other win this war. And I hope they will win this war. And I believe it's possible for them to win the war, but we need to arm them a lot, a lot more vigorously than we are doing for them to, to achieve that. So this is a little bit of another cheeky question, but as a Russian expert, what probability do you cast for a resolution to the conflict anytime soon, even within the next four months? I think it's possible. The only way, um, the only way that would happen is if Russia was was firmly defeated, because a real defeat would cause the fall of Putin. You know, Russian presidency, very like the the, um, the imperial throne uh, and the general secretaries of the Communist Party, is a sort of military high command and has always been structured like that since 1613, when the Romanov dynasty came to power, and. A really firm defeat and humiliation would bring down Putin, but it's the only thing that would. And anything like a, a um, the much more likely scenario is that it will be, it will be stuck, and that mm. there'll be a sort of stalemate, and that there will be some sort of peace negotiation, and that the that it will become a sort of conflict that that explodes again every every few years, you know, and and that the borders will be somewhat like the borders of. Israel and the middle and the Arab countries in 1948, for example, or Pakistan and India, or, and or the Korean, or the Korean, or the Korean Peninsula, yeah, and and that it will, you know, but that hasn't exploded into further wars, but the others have. There have been three Pakistan, India, would have been about five, you know, Israeli Arab wars. So that's the most likely scenario, I think, is that there'll be that that will be stuck, but that Ukraine will develop as a democracy, that it will be. It will be an armed democracy, what I call a war democracy in my book. I say there are sort of comfort democracies, which is Western Europe. Those are democracies where the population believe that they are owed massive amount of benefit by their state. Mm. Benefits that those states will now, will now increasingly struggle due to the aged population and so on, um, will increase, and, and the reluctance of many people to work as hard as they used to. And for mm. these reasons, um, these comfort democracies will face massive challenges in the next few years. You know, comfort democracies being Britain, America, France, and so on, Western Europe, the West, as we used to call it. But war democracies, of which Israel is a classic example, South Korea, Taiwan, their populations are already kind of mobilized and ready to take, make sacrifices. So they have different, I, I find them different political cultures. And Ukraine will be one of those and will be an armed camp for the foreseeable future. And, you know, we'll, we'll develop incredibly an incredibly dynamic economy. Because one of the things that my book, The World, shows is that war is the mm -hmm. most intense incubator and, and, um, and uh, spur for creativity and, and ingenuity and technology. We're seeing that already in this war. So I think Ukraine will be an incredibly advanced economy, but on a constant war footing.
and that Putin will remain in power as long as he's alive. Yeah. There is this tendency to think that the world is more uncertain at the moment, but uncertainty never changes. The, the future is always uncertain. It's just our perception of it that changes. And so with your historical lens, how do you read the current geopolitical status quo? The relationship between the Chinese and the American, China and Taiwan, Russia and Europe, China and India, China and well, the world. I see, yeah, I mean, first of all, I've, I, see, I see the period after World War II, 1945 to, to 2020, say, as a really uniquely stable period in world history. I mean, of course, there were constant wars, but they were fought by proxies, not by great powers. And they were not fought by nuclear powers. I mean, there was still, I mean, one of the things I've done in the book is to sort of show, you know, there are wars that we've barely heard of, like the Great African War in Congo, the Great Congo War, where millions of people died, or the war between Iran and Iraq, you know, where a million people died. I mean, these are just, these are catastrophic world events, but they had very little effect on us. So we regarded it as a peaceful period. And in fact, it was a peaceful period, um, but it was totally exceptional. The only sort of, the only parallel to it, perhaps, was the period after the, the Congress of Vienna in 18, from 1814 to 48, when, you know, Europe was really governed by kind of a very small group, something like the UN Security Council, uh, by the rulers of Russia, Britain, France, and so on. And um, it was called, it was the Congress system, it was called, and it sort of worked for a while. In Europe, but really, you know, and also another interesting thing about the, the, that period is that um, from 1945 is that there was a unique moral and liberal development. I mean, everyone wanted to, if they didn't have a democracy, they wanted to look like a democracy, which is interesting. Think about it. In Russia and China, they have presidencies and elections, which are all based, inspired by America. In fact, I think, but mm. of course. They're not real elections, but they want the look. Every state now has to have that look of representation. Mm. Anyway, I think it's interesting um, that um, that normal disorder has been restored, and I think that you know we're now going back to the way the way the world always was. Um, while while you know while that that period, the post forty five period, Cold War, as it was known, resembled a sort of game of chess between two huge players. Now it's more like a multiplayer um, computer game with mm. many, many more um, with many more players and many more combinations. And um, obviously, you know, climate change is a huge crisis and danger, but so is nuclear, the nuclear threat. Um, though nuclear proliferation has been incredibly restrained, really, um, mm. there are only eight or nine nuclear powers, depending on who you include. In that, in that list. In fact, that's a bit of an illusion because many, many more countries have pe what's called peaceful nuclear programs, which can easily be converted quickly to, to war programs, to weapons programs. So it could proliferate much faster than, than we think. And in the end, somebody will use some sort of nuclear weapon. It's no longer unthinkable. Maybe just a, ta ta uh, a tactical nuclear weapon. But tactical nuclear weapons are the same size as those at Hiroshima. Now, this is quite a significant matter. In the world crises, I mean, obviously, the, the leading crisis today, in my view, is, is not Russia, Ukraine, which is, which, which is a significant, huge conflict. But 
much more important is, of course, China, um, China and America, where you know where tensions are constantly rising. Um, both sides are arming. America's modernizing. China is constantly, you know, creating um, massive new armaments, technologies, so on and so forth. And it's really, I wouldn't yet say it's an aggressive power, but it wants the potential to be aggressive. And it's no longer, um, it's no longer following the, the Deng's rule of sort of um, build, build, but hide your, hide your power, build, restrain yourself. And so, you know, I'd say that you know, the, the highest chance in the next 50 years, I'd say the next 20 years, is, you know, some sort of confrontation. It's very important that America is courageous in, in if it's going to make a stand about Taiwan, that it makes the fact that it will make a stand incredibly clear. Mm. And, you know, one of the disasters of, of 1914 was that Britain was always going to come in on the side of France. But it hid that, it, it concealed that in secret uh, military agreements with France that it didn't reveal until war or, or the war had already started. And actually, it was completely the wrong approach. What they should have done is announce it so that the, the Germans would plan accordingly. And right until the last minute, the Kaiser and his, his people were, were sure that um, Britain would not come in. But in fact, Britain had signed agreements that obligated it to join France. So that's a key thing. I think the biggest danger in Asia is, in fact, Pakistan. And um, obviously, India and Pakistan are both nuclear powers. That's extremely dangerous. Mm. But I think the biggest danger in that area, in that region, which is obviously a hugely important region, um, is, is, is the breakup of Pakistan. India is completely, perfectly positioned to be the next superpower. It has everything that's necessary. It has mass. It has population. Now the biggest population in the world. It's a nuclear power. It has what I call empire state aspirations. It sees itself as a world power increasingly. And if it's well governed, if the present majoritarian government doesn't ruin um, Indian ingenuity and creativity by by persecuting ethnicities. In other words, if it remains a democracy, it will become the next great power and it's perfectly positioned. But the, the fall of Pakistan, which has been much predicted, really looks like it might happen any minute. And that would be a disaster. Of course, for India, it would mean India finally would win Kashmir. But what would it do with, with, with Pakistan, with the Punjab? It would be very tempted to take it into some sort of, you know, some sort of sphere of influence or, or annexation. That would be very dangerous because it would bring China into the region and, and that would bring a confrontation that could bring in the rest of the world. So I think Taiwan is the obvious spark, but I think Pakistan is even more dangerous because it's much more important. That's really interesting. Simon, we're coming to the end of our session today, and I cannot uh, end the conversation without asking you for a book recommendation. Ah, a book recommendation. Yeah, I think this is an essential book. Joseph Pilsudski, Founding Father of Modern Poland, by Joshua D. Zimmerman, which I've just read. And this is all about how Marshall Pilsudski, the founder of, of modern Poland, believed that a safe 
a strong Europe and a strong Poland was impossible without a strong Ukraine. And so it's very relevant to understanding what's happening today. In fact, I'd say it was a central reading. I've just read it recently. There's millions of other brilliant, brilliant books I've got in this office all piled up from my reading. But let's start with that. That's great. Simon, best of luck with your world tour promotion of your book and all of your traveling in the weeks ahead. And thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. This was truly fascinating. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you very much. Enjoy the book, everyone.